welcome to Wired to be Weird, the podcast where we try to bring you closer to the science of the brain. I'm Ian McLaughlin, a PhD student in neuroscience. And I'm Bo, a PhD holder in material science. And probably one of the most common topics that comes up in live streams on Ian's Periscope is deja vu. A lot of times people will literally just type in deja vu without even a question mark. Just like, deja vu, go! Yeah, and it seems like it's pretty evergreen. Since probably the first day I started live streaming, it's come up pretty regularly. Like, in fact, my bet is that there are more live streams that I do where it does come up uh, than it doesn't. Okay, well, why don't we start at the beginning? When I think of deja vu, I think of the feeling that I've had this experience before when I don't think I should. Right, I'm pretty sure that's what most people describe as deja vu. But I think a lot of people miss that second part, right? They just feel like, I've been here before, right? But there's also that component where you suspect that the feeling is wrong, that while you sense familiarity, you don't actually have the memory of the experience. And there's the matrix definition. Oh, right, of course, the, the, the machines are messing with us. <laughs> <laughs> or no, the, the glitch in the matrix. Right, right. Okay, and I remember in your last discussion of it, you said that what we think of as deja vu is actually called something else. Well, it's pretty widely accepted that the term deja vu encompasses pretty much everything that falls under the umbrella of incorrectly thinking a certain experience, like meeting someone or being somewhere, to sensory experiences, like having tasted, heard, or seen something. But in the 60s, there was an argument that there are actually distinct forms of this type of distortion. So, so for example, it was argued that there can be deja recontre, or <laughs> recontre. You're going to have to forgive me because this is a bunch of French, and I don't speak French, but describing this deja recontre uh, describes the incorrect perception that you've met someone before, specifically met somebody before, right? Or deja rêve uh, to describe that you've had a certain dream before or describing what I think most people think of as, as déjà vu, right? Which is actually déjà vécu, to describe the incorrect perception that you've had a current experience before. There doesn't really seem to be a standard with regards to contemporary research uh, regarding which term ought to be used, but I think pretty much everyone can get on the same page through the use of déjà vu. All right, listeners, you might need to check the show notes for th what those words actually are and how they're pronounced because neither of us know French. Yeah, and how they're spelled. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so you say that there's research specifically focused on deja vu. Yes, uh, there is. Though a lot of it is actually derived from epilepsy research. There isn't a whole ton that's entirely devoted to deja vu, like specifically, uh, but there is some of that too. So, so for example, it turns out that about 80% of healthy folks will experience deja vu at least once. And the frequency of deja vu tends to peak in the third decade of life, right, in your 30s. And it's associated with longer education and higher socioeconomic statuses, as well as increased frequency of travel. Huh, that's really interesting. Is there an explanation as to why these things would increase the frequency? Well, they're really only hypotheses. So, for example, it turns out that only 11% of people who didn't tend to travel experienced deja vu, while 32% of people who did travel up to five times experienced increased frequencies of deja vu. And so the, the researchers that, that studied this particular population suggest that the more one travels to new places, there are just more opportunities to experience deja vu due to it just being less likely to occur in contexts that are encountered more regularly, right? Like your everyday life. So to actually experience deja vu, someone has to feel that the familiarity is inaccurate. And if you're just more regularly in familiar environments, 
interacting with genuinely familiar people, you're just less likely to experience inaccurate familiarity. Yeah, exactly. So explain the link with epilepsy research. Do people with epilepsy experience deja vu? So not all folks with epilepsy experience like non-typical frequencies of deja vu, but a certain subset of them do experience deja vu at significantly greater frequencies. And maybe we should talk about what epilepsy is. Sure. So, so without going too far into the details, uh, epilepsy is a seizure-associated condition, right? And, and seizures are basically just abnormally elevated neuronal excitation or, or just activation in the brain. So basically, just runaway or uncontrolled excitatory activity, excitation. I think most people would picture someone who's convulsing when they have a seizure. Right, and that is the most frequently diagnosed form of epilepsy. But there are other forms as well. So, for example, some people will have an absence seizure, where you wouldn't really even know that they're having a seizure, apart from the fact that they're kind of zoning out and being unresponsive. Uh, and like another example would be atonic seizures, uh, which are also a disruption of muscle contraction, right? Like convulsions are, but they just result in a loss of muscle tone. So like the relaxation of the muscles? Yeah, that's right. And so sometimes they're, they're even called drop seizures, right, as a result. And then some people experience what are called partial seizures. And these can be associated with sensory distortions, like seeing a light that isn't there or tasting or smelling something that isn't there. And these distortions are referred to as, as auras. And all of these are resulting from abnormal activity in the brain. And depending on where in the brain that abnormal activity is occurring, you'll see different manifestations. Because different circuits in the brain control different aspects of our consciousness. Exactly. Well, there's one form of epilepsy that's associated with deja vu as an aura, and that's temporal lobe epilepsy. And if I remember correctly, the temporal lobes are basically the sides of the brain. Yeah, that's right. N nicely uh, remembered. Uh, and it's the home of a bunch of memory-associated circuit components that many people have probably heard of, like the hippocampus and the amygdala but also other memory circuitry that are lesser known, like the perirhinal and entorhinal cortices, right? In other words, the perirhinal cortex and the entorhinal cortex, and, and as well as the temporal sulcus. And so it turns out that deja vu can actually be elicited in patients with temporal lobe epilepsy by stimulating these very structures. Wow, weird. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what that would be like, and I'd love to have some descriptions of the experiences from those patients. Like, basically, like, imagine being in a surgical room, having brain surgery. You've definitely never been there before. Then a neurosurgeon starts stimulating these brain regions and all of a sudden, you get the feeling that you've been here before, had this done to you before. Then, all of a sudden, the neurosurgeon stops stimulating the medial temporal lobe and that illusion totally disappears for no apparent reason. You go from wholeheartedly recognizing this experience to finding it totally foreign. But do you still, or do those patients still remember that a second ago they felt deja vu? Right, uh, I would imagine. I mean, you know, again, I don't have like a great description of these experiences, right? But they would probably remember the sensation of familiarity, but they are no longer in that moment of familiarity, right? Okay, definitely sounds like it'd be fairly freaky to have that done to you. And so these medial temporal brain structures are involved in increased deja vu in people with epilepsy. But what about people without epilepsy? That's a great question. And so until just a few years ago, this wasn't really well known. And it was sort of assumed that, yeah, the same brain structures are probably involved in both. And in epilepsy, there was just more regular activation of these circuits, right, during seizures. But in 2015, a group found that there were similarities and differences in this anatomy. But first of all, 
They explored whether or not there were anatomical differences among people without epilepsy who tend to have more frequent deja vu, and they tended to have greater gray matter volumes among medial temporal lobe structures, as well as between the medial temporal lobe, dorsal striatum, and insular cortex. People who tend to have a lower incidence of deja vu tended to have a lower probability of functional coactivation between the medial and lateral temporal cortices. And some other studies suggest that people who experience deja vu at greater frequencies just tend to have lower overall gray matter in these circuits that are known to be critical to recognition memory. So basically, if there's a lower likelihood of communication between the medial temporal lobe and the lateral temporal lobe, then there's a lower frequency of deja vu? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's at least what this group has found. Okay, so do all people with epilepsy who have seizures in the medial temporal lobe experience deja vu during their seizures? No, they don't. And while they do tend to experience it more, there are patients who don't experience this particular aura of deja vu. It turns out that if there is a signal that occurs in the temporal neocortex during or after seizure activity in these structures, right, in the medial temporal cortex, deja vu is much less likely to occur. So in other words, this may suggest that structures in more lateral temporal uh, regions can step on the brakes, right, of that incorrect familiarity signal that seems to be initiated by activity in a circuit of medial temporal structures. And also, people with epilepsy who tended to experience deja vu as an aura of their seizures also tended to have anatomical differences in the visual cortex as well. So it's like there's a circuit that has sub-circuits involved in memory, and then with determining if a given memory is relevant to your current experience. And if signaling in that broader circuit breaks down, you can have one aspect of that signaling without the other. Yeah, basically, yeah, that's right. And this actually fits in nicely with something called the dual process theory of recognition memory. Seems like a lot of words to describe recognition. <laughs> right, uh, so given that there are so many types of memory, like with declarative memory, episodic, procedural memory, and, and so on, People who study memory try to break it down into its parts, right? And there's a debate as to whether recognition is just one phenomenon within the brain or if you can distinguish familiarity from recognition. Right. So like we've been saying, you can have the feeling that something is familiar but fail to bring up the memory that actually makes it familiar. That's exactly right. And so critics of this model suggest that familiarity is just like the antecedent to recognition or, or recollection. It's like the first step along the way to ultimately recognizing a given experience or person or, or whatever. They see memory as a spectrum of confidence or strength. And familiarity is just a less confident memory signal than recognition. An example that they'll put forth is the process of seeing somebody walking towards you that you swear you've met before. You then start exploring cues like, who might have introduced you to them, or if you remember them wearing different clothes or in a different setting. And then eventually you realize that you've never actually met this person, but they work behind the register at the grocery store. Deja vu researchers, though, seem to frequently make the argument that deja vu is an excellent example of why these are separate phenomena or separate dynamics in the brain that communicate with one another closely. But when that communication breaks down, you have an incorrect sense of familiarity without the recognition to back it up. They argue that this literally translates to better coordination between the hippocampus and the whole medial temporal network during recognition or recollection, whereas deja vu results from an activation of just a subset of this circuit. So, you know, for example, activation of the insular cortex may be what enables us to perceive 
that sense of familiarity while realizing that it's not accurate because of that missing recognition signal. Activation of the insula. <laughs> right. So some deja vu researchers argue that because this structure in particular is involved in self-evaluative activity, right, you're evaluating yourself, this signal may be what's basically monitoring for errors in this recognition circuit. And a group found that people without epilepsy who tended to experience increased rates of deja vu tended to have anatomical differences in this insular cortex. So basically, you can feel familiarity without actually recalling why. Yeah, in a nutshell, that's the dual process theory. And I haven't encountered one paper discussing deja vu that argues against that model. In fact, a group of researchers in the UK and Washington University in St. Louis go so far as to suggest that deja vu is specifically derived from the erroneous sensation of familiarity, whereas deja vu is the erroneous sensation of recollection. And they've put out what looks like a magnum opus level paper in pursuit of this hypothesis that dies into some like electrophysiology within the hippocampus, but I just haven't had enough time to like critically dive into it. Okay. And I've heard you say that some drugs are able to induce deja vu. Would that because they activate some parts of these uh, brain circuits? That's definitely a theory that's out there. So one of the coolest things I found when doing a literature review for this episode was the story of a 42-year-old woman with something called palatal tremors being treated with 5-hydroxytryptophan or 5-HTP and carbidopa. And what are palatal tremors and 5-hydroxytryptophan? <laughs> right, so they're basically the result of a movement disorder that causes these rhythmic movements of the soft palate, and uvula, and pharynx in the mouth and throat that can be severe enough to cause a clicking sound that's loud enough to wake people up. Are you sure you're not talking about snoring? <laughs> no, this is definitely not snoring. This is, you know, just a movement disorder. Because I do that. <laughs> is that right? Huh. I never snore. No. <laughs> All right, anyway, so... Uh, it can sometimes appear to respond to treatment with a combination of 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan, and carbidopa. Well, there's an amazing case study of this woman, right, who experienced extremely prolonged and repetitive deja vu two times, specifically after having taken this treatment, this combination. And she only took the treatment twice, right? So it really seems like it was what was causing the deja vu. Well, what makes this case study so particularly interesting is the fact that it includes her own description of her experience. And I wish I had a recording of her describing it, but the best that I can do is read it for you. I feel like since this is a woman, I should do the reading. Oh, snap. Okay, yeah, sure, you can read it. Okay. I took the tablet at around 11.30, and by 12, I was vomiting severely. I stopped feeling sick 15 minutes later and lay down in my bed and put the TV on. I felt okay by then, but was a little freaked out when I watched TV as I felt I was watching repeats, although I knew I wasn't, as it was the news. I then got a call from my sister to tell me the kids were being sent home as there was a power cut at school. I asked her why she was telling me this again as she had told me this several days before. She asked me if I was okay and asked how she could have known that there was going to be a power cut. To be honest with you, I remember feeling really mad with her bothering me with something she'd already told me when I was feeling so sick. It felt perfectly normal for me. I didn't have any strange feelings as you normally do when you get deja vu. I called my husband to ask him to come home. I also felt I'd done it before too. After several hours of feeling tired and feeling sick now and again, 
my mind went back to normal and feeling of having done all of this before left me. Since the doctor didn't think it was the pills, I decided to try the tablets again. Everything happened again. This time I went to my room, switched off TV, turned off the phone and asked to be left alone. I had the same feeling of having seen and done all of this before. I didn't have any eerie type of feeling. I knew I couldn't know these things, but I felt like I did. The funny thing with all of this was that if you asked me what was going to happen, I didn't know. I just felt that as things were happening that I had done before and it felt natural for me to know all of this. Okay, so I just read that the exact way it was written uh, in the case study and I know that it might have sounded like there were a couple of words missing here and there, but we wanted to stay true to exactly what was written. So hopefully you still understood the gist of those sentences. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was like a, a you know phone interview or something like that. Um, but anyways, yeah, pretty wild, right? It's kind of scary. Um, but the good news is that the tremors did go away. Uh, it totally disappeared for two weeks after the second dose and uh, they were significantly alleviated for the following three months. Well, that's good that the treatment was effective against the tremors. So what does this tell us about deja vu? Well, 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan, is a precursor to the neurotransmitters serotonin and melatonin. And so this treatment will significantly elevate the amount of serotonin being synthesized and likely released in the brain. And on top of that, the circuitry we've been discussing so far in the medial temporal lobe is very densely populated with serotonin and serotonin receptors. And in fact, my own research has shown that I can alter serotonin levels in the hippocampus, uh, one of the temporal lobe structures we've been discussing, but that's not necessarily related. I just thought I'd bring it up. <laughs> and another line of data corroborates the idea that serotonin signaling and perhaps dopamine signaling as well may participate in the signaling that underlies deja vu. Okay, so a 39-year-old physician who was being treated with a drug cocktail to treat the flu uh, started experiencing intense and recurrent deja vu within 24 hours of drug treatment. Once the treatment stopped, though, the deja vu stopped. And the drugs with which he was being treated are both known to elevate dopamine and serotonin signaling. And then, on top of that, psychedelics, which, you know, as we talked about in the past, are a family of drugs that's probably most closely associated with the 60s and the hippie movement, uh, it includes drugs like LSD, magic mushrooms, and psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, right? Well, these drugs are known to be able to induce deja vu, right? And guess which neurotransmitter system among the many is particularly altered by the activities of these drugs? Serotonin. That's right. <laughs> and so, as is the case, right, with many aspects of um, consciousness, the monoamine neurotransmitters, which includes both serotonin and dopamine, appear to be involved in the signaling that underlies deja vu and deja vu. The tryptophan in the 5-hydroxytryptophan something? <laughs> is that the same tryptophan that's in turkeys? It's not the same tryptophan. It's, a, it's an altered tryptophan molecule, right? So it's 5-hydroxytryptophan, right? So you just take the amino acid tryptophan, which is found in turkey, right? Um, and then you add a hydroxyl group in the 5 position on that molecule, right? So it's, it's you know, that's it it then is further modified to become serotonin and then further modified to become melatonin. So, uh, so yeah, but same, basically the same thing. A anyways, it kind of makes you think uh, about how fallible not only memory is, but perception itself. I mean, think about the implications of not being able to trust your own mind's ability to accurately perceive if you've had a certain experience before. Yeah, it's so unintuitive. Like, I feel like out of 
everyone and everything in the world, at the very least, I should be able to trust my own mind. Yeah, exactly. But the reality is that people who have what might be called a typical brain, right, like a healthy brain, make remarkably few mistakes in this arena, right? We're pretty good. But almost everyone's experienced deja vu at one time or another, and some physicians compare deja vu to things like delusions. But for many people, the implications of this are a bit scarier. So for example, there's a story I found of a gentleman who was experiencing some of the symptoms of dementia, uh, namely confabulation. So th this is where um, this breakdown of our brain's ability to accurately navigate the present, past, and future can get a little freaky. For example, if you're not only prone to experiencing familiarity in unfamiliar situations or with unfamiliar people, and you're also prone to confabulation, right, or total fabrications of past memories, right, about your past or about past events in general, you can start to make decisions that are based on completely fabricated realities. And those could be pretty bad decisions. <laughs> right, I should think so. And so that gentleman that, that I described, who was experiencing confabulation and deja vu, well, he started believing that he'd married this woman three times in three different places in Europe. And so like, imagine fabricating that kind of intimacy with someone. How, how might you behave around that person? You know, think of the assumptions you'd make about that person. Yeah, that's pretty freaky. But honestly, the scariest research that I came across was from a group that was studying deja vu and the believability of false evidence. And so specifically, this group was exploring whether the timing of exposure to false evidence influences how believable it is. Some of the uh, results of their experiments weren't entirely surprising, right? But frankly, even I, right, the consummate skeptic of how perfect human consciousness really is, I was pretty shocked at how easy it was to trick people into believing they'd seen something they'd never actually seen or done something they'd never actually done. See, that's the kind of stuff that gives me the heebie-jeebies, like almost mind control. I know, yeah, me too. And so here's what they did. So first, people completed a hazard perception driving test, and they were then falsely accused of cheating. They were shown a fake video or photograph of the cheating at either a nine minute delay or more than once with or without a delay. And what is a hazard perception driving test? Right, yeah. So it's part of uh, driver's ed, I guess, uh, apparently. I never had to take it personally. But you're basically shown videos of situations people encounter while driving. And then you're required to respond appropriately to certain hazardous situations. And you, know, you can take these things online for free. Okay, and so what happened? Well, it turned out that people uh, were more likely to believe that they cheated and even provide explanations of how they cheated when false evidence was delayed or repeated. And this effect was strongest when exposure to false evidence occurred repeatedly over time. Okay, so I'm not quite sure I understand how the test was done. It's a person sitting in front of a TV watching a video, right? And they're recording how they would react to a certain hazard. Right. So then after the test, they're shown a doctor video of them cheating. Right. So either nine minutes after they took the test or, or more than once after they took the test with or without a delay. So they, they were shown the evidence immediately after uh, they took the test repeatedly or with a delay after they took the test repeatedly. Okay. Okay. And so and even just a short delay between the actual event, taking the test, and presentation of false evidence, that was enough to convince people that the false evidence was true. Repeating the false evidence over brief delays was able to foster false beliefs more effectively than without delays. So in other words, researchers were able to convince people that they cheated on a test by showing them false evidence of their cheating 
just by messing with either how soon after they took the test or allegedly cheated and how frequently they were shown the false evidence or both. Yeah, exactly. That's nuts. I know, right? And there's more research that really freaked me out. So another group studied the question of why doctored images are capable of distorting our memory. And uh, here's how they did it. So subjects were filmed as they watched and copied. A researcher performed various innocuous actions like looking under a table or counting to 20. And then on test day, they were exposed to a doctored video of the actions that included actions that the subjects had neither observed nor performed. And so there were three ways that the videos were shown to the subjects. So the subjects either saw a video of themselves watching the video of the researcher performing those false actions, right? Like from a third person perspective, or they watched videos of the researcher performing those false actions without seeing themselves watching the video, or they saw clips of a totally different person watching the video of the researcher performing those false actions. After that, Subjects performed a memory test to rate whether they believed they were performing each action as well as whether they remember performing the action. This, of course, included the false actions. So in other words, there were three groups, and the main thing that was different between them was whether they saw themselves watching the original video. Like, they either saw a first person, third person, or third person watching somebody else. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, and let me guess. <laughs> They saw that same kind of acceptance of false evidence. Yeah, that's right. And so the group who watched a video of themselves watching the uh, researchers performing the actions gave higher believability and memory ratings than the other group. So in other words, they were unable to identify that the video was doctored, saying things like, I didn't even notice. So basically, if you were watching the video in third person, like you're watching yourself do these false actions, then you believe that you actually, you're more likely to believe that you actually did the false action. That's right, yeah. And how do they explain this? Well, they refer to a theory that when we encounter suggestions that contradict our, our own beliefs and memories, we reconsider the features of like our mental properties, right? We see if they can possibly match up. And if our beliefs and memories still, still don't seem to add up, we then turn to information in our environment to try and gain more insight. And that's the point where we become vulnerable because when the information in the environment is intentionally altered to corroborate the mismatched suggestions rather than what our own mental properties would suggest, then we're susceptible to believing the false and contradictory suggestions. And so this is demonstrated in the action-mimicking doctored video test, where researchers could even amplify that vulnerability by increasing what they call the credibility of this environmental evidence by showing the test subjects themselves watching the doctored video. It just becomes more likely that you're being exposed to a more reliable source of information about the past uh, than you have stored in your brain. You're quite literally lowering the standards for what you will consider to be accurate memories. So, so in other words, this new and doctored evidence is somehow made more familiar than it ought to be, right? And while you don't necessarily have a full recollection of the event, and you don't fully recognize the actions in this doctored video, the familiarity is enough to give you the sense that you'd been there before, experienced those actions before. In other words, deja vu and deja vécu. Okay, this is incredible. And I wonder if there is any differences between uh, the genders and how they're likely to believe in the... Uh, the false evidence or not, the doctored evidence or not. Why do you say that? Well, because, uh, well, I'm speaking in, you know, Generalities. generalities. Yeah, sure, right. uh, it's risky territory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But, you know, women can have the reputation for being people pleasers or being unsure of themselves, mm. having lower self-confidence, whereas men can be maybe a little too self-confident. <laughs> well, right, maybe more aggressive or assertive or... Too sure of themselves. Too confident. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that we could really... If that difference does indeed exist, I don't know that neuroscience could even articulate what the distinction might be. It might be entirely sociological, right? Um, you know, just to totally behavioral and has really nothing to do with the underlying neurophysiology. But who knows? I mean, that, that's an interesting question. Okay. Anyway, that's pretty crazy. I know, right? And so, of course, this has significant consequences with regards to criminal prosecution, where we rely so much on environmental evidence to come to conclusions. Audio recordings, fingerprints, photographs, even videos, right? When altered just competently enough and presented after a long enough period and frequently enough, that can even potentially convince a defendant that they're guilty of things of which they're entirely innocent. But as freaky as that certainly is, think about how much we all rely on digital sources of media, from news, for knowledge about the world, how it works and what people are up to, to even our own photos as mementos of our own past experiences. And then you think about how easy it is to distort these things and how much easier it is today than it's ever been in human history. I mean, we may be living in a time where our primate brain is just too unsophisticated, too naively trusting of the environment to be able to accurately determine truth. We didn't evolve in an environment that presented us with intentionally altered evidence, right? Predators, you know, lions in the savannas of Africa weren't manipulating data to try and get us, right? And until recently, competently altering evidence like photos or videos or, or news stories was fairly difficult and really only possible uh, by highly trained people. But now you don't even have to have finished junior high school to be able to make very convincingly altered photographs in like Photoshop. And social media enables false accounts of events to spread so much more rapidly than was ever possible before. So I hope that we can develop some sort of defense mechanisms to compensate for this evolutionary problem. Otherwise, it may be possible that we're just clever enough to trick ourselves into delusions, but not clever enough to protect ourselves from ourselves. So it's made by centrifuging some turkey <laughs> and extracting the tryptophan. Right. And then you wave a magic wand. Right. Yeah. So there's huge turkey farms to just <laughs> harvest serotonin from turkeys. No, and honestly, I don't even know that there's that much more serotonin or uh, serotonin, that much more uh, tryptophan in turkey meat than any other meat. Like, yeah. So I don't know. But no, I don't think that there are huge turkey farms for harvesting tryptophan. Just, you know, probably a good thing. Gobble, gobble.